0: Welcome to the Optimize Your Capacity podcast. Our goal is to help individuals as well as health and fitness professionals enhance their capacity and reach their untapped potential. We aim to have the listener leave with practical advice they can apply today. All right, so we're back here now with another discussion-based podcast with the theme being foot-ankle misconceptions. I don't really think there's a debate upon the value of the foot ankle. Some believe that since it's the first structure that hits the ground, it has the largest impact on how our body accepts the ground reaction forces of walking, squatting, running, jumping. Um, And it's no coincidence that there's 26 bones in the foot, 30 ligaments in the foot, 7,000 nerve endings in the foot. Why do you think such a small structure has so many articulations, soft tissue components, it's because it has to sense the ground and has a lot to control and a lot of dynamic components to it that can easily go wrong, cause foot-ankle issues as well as cause issues up the kinetic chain. Before we get into the misconceptions, I think it's good just to think about how do we break down the foot-ankle. The way I like to think about it is you have three sections. You have your rear foot, your midfoot, and your forefoot. And the way I treat or assess is I go rear foot to forefoot, with the concept of your rear foot is really kind of the rudder of the foot, by that I mean where that goes it kind of dictates the rest of the foot. It's also the first structure to hit the ground. The components of the rear foot contain the distal tib-fib, or the end of the shin bones, which then make up the mortise, or the rooftop of the ankle. You have the calcaneus or the heel, and then you have the talus, which is this oddly shaped bone that sits in the mortise or the rooftop, that gets a lot of publicity being stiff or dysfunctional, limiting ankle dorsiflexion or bend. Then we have the midfoot, which contains the navicular, the three different cuneiforms, medial, middle, and lateral, and then the cuboid think of the midfoot as the transition point, how we transition load from the rear foot to the forefoot. The forefoot then contains the phalanges, the metatarsals, and this is really where propulsion happens. Um, So if we think of our foot breaking down into three regions, you then can base your exercise, anatomy, biomechanics, differential diagnosis based on those three regions and kind of zone in which region of the foot do you feel is really causing the most dysfunction. And I encourage you to start with the rear foot because you'll probably notice more significant function and get the quicker changes if you address it. Um, one of the common dysfunctions that we think of or common dysfunctions that we think of, right? We think of flat feet or pronated feet. We think of loss of ankle dorsiflexion. We think of foot weakness. The other one that often gets addressed is just the lack of first-ray extension or great toe extension. And these are really common things that we see, common dysfunctions we see, but really rarely the cause of the dysfunction, more of the symptom. That doesn't mean they don't need to be addressed, but if you go after a great toe extension without addressing the rest of the foot, you're only going to get short-term results and things aren't going to last because you're likely not getting to the cause of the dysfunction. So then what are we missing when we're analyzing the foot ankle? What oversights are we having or what are we maybe training incorrectly? And that's what I want us to get into today. So the first one, which we just touched on, are pronated feet, or flat feet. Uh, First off, it's very rare I have yet to see a true pronated foot. Let me explain. So a pronated foot would be if I have the calcaneus stacked or under neutral alignment underneath the distal tib fib, if I have the talus centered in the mortise, If I have those components or if I have the rear foot underneath proper alignment and my foot is then collapsed with the midfoot collapse, navicular weight bearing, the pronation happens with all those, that would be what I consider a pronated foot, meaning the rear foot's aligned, but there's still pronation. And I have yet to see that. And I've been doing this for over 10 years, seen a bunch of feet, have some experience, by no means am I an expert, but have enough experience to say that it's a pretty rare occurrence to have pronated feet. I think the only way it really happens is if you have some sort of trauma where you break your foot, have a car run over your foot, maybe you have a foot fusion for whatever reason you're having surgery for. Um, so then why do pronated feet happen or the appearance of a pronated foot? And I think it really stems from either a mobility or a stability issue. The mobility would be, let's say a common pattern that we see is the rear foot is stuck in inversion, where if we truly stack that rear foot underneath the distal tip fib or underneath the shin, even though the foot is collapsed, if you were to stack it, you would actually see that the foot's not collapsed. What you would actually see is if you put that calcaneus and talus right underneath the mortise, more often than not, people are hanging out on the lateral column of their foot their fourth and fifth toe but you can't walk around like that all day every day you'd sprain your foot four or five times or sprain your ankle four or five times a day so what your body does is it compensates it then it then will try to collapse the midfoot force load into the first ray and create this almost compensated supinated posture by that i mean The foot's really supinated, but it can't function that way, so the body does whatever it can to cheat to get first-ray loading. That would be more of a mobility issue of the rear foot dictating what's going on with the forefoot. Likewise with this presentation, you'll often see that the midfoot is stiff as well. The other reason for pronation is maybe the rear foot actually is fairly mobile, maybe the midfoot's mobile as well, but they have no stability. So when they do that heel-to-toe rock, they load rear foot transitioning into forefoot, they actually have no foot-intrinsic posterior tip stability, gastroxoleus stability, and so what happens, instead of getting this nice kind of transition of pronation to supination to pronation to get proper loading of the foot the foot just slams into pronation you slam over and over again that's when you start to get first ray issues Um, so it can be both often if you lack the stability you lack the mobility and vice versa but again I challenge you look at your next pronated foot try to get the talus centered or what we would call subtalar neutral and see if that foot is still pronated it's probably not What's another thing that we often misdiagnose? The other, the next would be another misconception would be plantar fasciitis. So 10, 20 years ago, we basically thought any bottom of the foot or plantar foot pain was plantar fasciitis. We simply stretch our calves, roll out our feet with a golf ball, do some icing of our foot, work on getting ankle dorsiflexion, all of our issues go away. But if you've ever managed plantar fasciitis, you really know that that never works. So then the doc starts shooting up with cortisone, you start sleeping with night splints, you do any other option you can think of, but really, again, you're not getting to the cause or what's truly driving that plantar fasciitis. One, again, can be foot stability. So if you go back to what I was talking about before, if you lack stability and you're doing the slamming down of going rear foot to forefoot, you're basically putting the plantar fascia under high-speed end-range loading over and over again, and you can cause inflammation to that fascia and the foot intrinsics on the bottom of the foot. A very often cause, too, in addition to just stability, is that rear foot or proximal dysfunction. So often there can be neural tension drivers behind plantar fasciitis. More often than not, right, we see hamstring, we see gastroxolitis limitations, we see posterior chain limitations. We often see issues stemming from lumbar pelvic issues where you get neural tension, sciatica, which can be either presenting as numbness and tingling or just positive neural dynamic testing, slump, straight leg raise. If you have positive neural dynamic tension, and you have lack of elongation of the posterior chain of your glute, hamstring, gastroxoleus, you're basically living in this chronic guarded tension position on the posterior chain. What are you going to do then? You're going to slam down your heel, you're going to struggle getting dorsiflexion and rear foot to forefoot loading with the gait cycle, and you can actually get plantar fasciitis, but not from a foot issue, but more proximal stability, meaning lumbar pelvic hip stability with neural tension. So often with these cases, if you work on posterior elongation, elongating in the backside, you work on neural mobility with the coccyx actually being an important structure because the coccyx is the tent pole of the neural dynamics. It's where the lumbar neural fascia actually connects to. You resolve those neural dynamics. You resolve the posterior elongation while working on anterior stability, being appropriate hip flexion stability, anterior core stability, cal- sorry, dorsiflexion stability, as well as quad rectus stability. You often relieve the plantar fasciitis without even addressing the foot ankle itself. A third cause that I see with plantar fasciitis, quote-unquote, is posture. A common postural holding pattern you'll see is people live on their heel. They live in end range terminal hyperextension. They live standing on their heel, and often they live then with this, like, chronic extension holding pattern with the thoracic block posterior to the pelvic block you again live on your heel never get weighed into your toes never truly dorsiflex you then lead to this excessive heel loading and plantar fascial tension and then issues start to develop but big picture plantar fasciitis just gets over miss gets over and misdiagnosis diagnosed Not trying to throw doctors underneath the bus, but some you'll see as they go, oh, the bottom of your foot hurts, plantar fasciitis, do these stretches, take these pills, go to PT. If it doesn't work, come back, we'll inject it. But there's so many other things that can be going on. You could have navicular bone bruising, tarsal tunnel syndrome, spring ligament issues, fat pad inflammation. You could have uh, turf toe or sesamoid issues. There's so much going on with the plantar surface of the foot where rarely do you have that cornerstone uh plantar fascial case that we're talking about what's another misconception would be the concept of a bunion so a bunion or is excess excessive bone formation on the medial column of the first ray so with bunions what we see is we, or at least we used to think of that, oh, you have flat feet, you're born that way, there's nothing you can do about it, which we talked about. That's very, very the case. There's often a driver. But this is, again, traditional thinking. You have flat feet, you hang out on your first ray, inevitably you're going to get bone. Excess bone formation, we just shave off the bone and everything goes away. And again, rarely does that actually fix anything. If we go back to the concept of pronation, pronation is not a posture, it's a dysfunction caused by other issues, often rear foot dysfunction or stability issues. If we align the rear foot and midfoot and get proper stability, we shouldn't live in this pronated foot posture. The issue with that pronated foot posture is you're just slamming that first ray every time you go into the toe off phase. You slam that first ray over and over again, it becomes an excessive weight bearing structure Your body then accommodates by putting more bone there and creating a bony callus. You do that long enough, that first ray starts to go into valgus or go lateral. The whole forefoot goes lateral. You start compressing your toe box. You start pinching the nerves between your toes. You get neuroma. If we simply shave off the bone, do a bunionectomy, again, you're not addressing all these other components we just talked about. So the next time you see a bunion, don't think shave it off, don't think toe spacers, think driving to the cause. Get that rear foot mobile, get that midfoot mobile, work on foot stability, and work on that transition of heel to toe rocking. You can restore then that equal weight distribution, so you're not slamming down that first ray. I'm not saying you can reverse bony formation, but you can make sure no bony formation happens. And something I love to do with clients is I'll actually measure the valgus angle of their first ray. I'll do some of these things we just talked about, and you can get immediate changes to that valgus angle after restoring these things. Then at that point, you could use a toe spacer or something else to spread out the toe and make sure you're kind of addressing it in a more passive way as well. The fourth thing I want to talk about are ankle dorsiflexion loss. Um, This does happen more acute cases where you get true isolated ankle dorsiflexion loss, ankle sprain, ankle OA, maybe a distal tib-fib fracture, some other surgery, maybe a Taylor dome microfracture, whatever the surgery may be, you can get true isolated ankle dorsiflexion loss. If you can't dorsiflex, you can't squat, you can't sit to stand, you can't walk, you can't go up downstairs, huge deal. But if you have... Jimmy coming in, who's a 27-year-old with lack of ankle dorsiflexion, or let's say you caught Jimmy when he was 12 and he still didn't have ankle dorsiflexion, you're probably going to be barking up the wrong tree if you just sit there and work on dorsiflexion without getting to why that dorsiflexion was lost. A common pattern you'll see are those people that lack that anterior stability. They lack anterior core, they lack quad, they lack ankle dorsiflexion. And what we are kind of talking about before is then they lack posterior elongation, which would be calf gastroxoleus, as well as glute-hamstring interface. You see these people squat. They maybe squat with a one or two out of three on the FMS. Maybe they tend to lift up their heels. Maybe if you put their heels elevated, they actually end up squatting a lot better. Again, you could probably need to address dorsiflexion, but that's more of a symptom than a cause. If you can get them to control triple flexion, hip, knee, ankle, dorsiflexion, usually in non-weight-bearing ways and progressing load and speed, you're gonna be training that mass flexion pattern and getting the core proximal stability to help with that distal mobility or dorsiflexion. So stabilize the trunk, regress the squat pattern, teach them how to load their heels in non-threatening easy ways and then challenge them with more and more uh, higher level loads but these people don't just blame ankle dorsiflexion it is a symptom get to what's causing it again i see more and more people just do the fms they get a two they put the board underneath their heels they think it's their ankle they'll do this they'll then see if they do like a needle wall dorsiflexion test that their ankles are actually fairly efficiently good at dorsiflexion. And what the heel pop can do on the FMS, it does, yes, take away dorsiflexion, but it actually helps create a counterweight where when you prop up the heel, it makes it easier for your core to work. So you can actually have decent dorsiflexion, but prop up the heel and get a better squat because it makes it easier on your trunk to stabilize during the squat pattern. So to recap, misconceptions, there is no thing as such thing as a pronated foot without some crazy trauma. The other one was plantar fasciitis, probably not plantar fasciitis, and please don't just roll it out and stretch it. Find out what causes it, and more often than not there's a neural driver. Bunions, sure shave them off, it's only going to help, but really you're only just addressing the symptom. Look more in the rear foot, look more on stability as well as mobility of the rear and midfoot. And the last is dorsiflexion you don't randomly lose it don't just randomly stretch it stabilize locally work on that mass flexion pattern work on developmental movement patterns crawling rolling uh, sit to stand things like that then you'll get more functional control of dorsiflexion versus isolated control so hopefully you got some good little nuggets there with the foot ankle it's more complex than you'd think Don't think too simplified and always think about how it's influencing the kinetic chain, how it might be influencing patellofemoral issues, might be influencing hip rotation control. It's a huge deal and we should all be working on foot stability and mobility in some form. Thanks.
1: All right, guys, thanks for listening to the discussion today. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we're really excited about offering some new services. First off, web page is up and ready to go, so check it out, capacitypt.com. We've got a free ebook up and ready to download. If you go to capacitypt.com, you scroll down the homepage, you'll see a quick, easy link to download the ebook. You send in your email, and you get the ebook emailed to you. Um, we obviously have the podcast, which you're listening to today. But in addition to that, we offer online training for rehab and performance. We can help you with program design, help you with a nagging pain. Um, And there's a whole bunch more exercise videos. There's going to be blog posts, which are already up there, more content to follow. So subscribe to this podcast. Keep an eye on the webpage. And again, I'll update you with more services and contents out there. But hopefully, again, all this content is being made free of charge to help as many people as possible. So spread the word. Hope you enjoy and have a good day.